I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Fernanda Magallanes, a psychoanalyst practicing in Mexico City. For more, visit her website, fairmagallanes.com. That's F-E-R-M-A-G-A-L-L-A-N-E-S.com. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay, as okay as can be in these very uncertain times. It is. It's difficult. And you are seeing your patients from distance, no? I guess you've been seeing them for long distance because you want to live somewhere else, right? Exactly. Ever since I left New York, all of my patients have been remote because uh, most oh. of them are still in America. Okay. That's good. So there's no change now that they are uh, calling you for a different circumstance because it's the same form of connection, no? Yeah, exactly. And most of them I've been seeing for a long time. So it's an established relationship. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. But most of them are in New York and New York is really scary right now. Yeah. It's it's now the the city with the highest peak, no? Yeah, it's difficult. And how is it in Mexico City? Well, in Mexico City, we are still very uncertain because things have started to happen since a little bit of days ago. There are many deaf people by now, and. Uh, our population is full of obesity and full of many problems that might have like comorbidity uh, with this sickness. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult. And to me personally, it has been difficult because my father has a, has a condition that if he gets it, he will die. No? And his secretary got it. So we are waiting to see if he has it or not, and I really hope he doesn't. But meanwhile, uh, well, he just closed, of course, his office, and now he's he's home. And well, we've been uh, a part of that. Uh, In general, the recommendation in the city is to be, since 20-something days ago, it's to be home. Uh, and all the regular recommendations that are, they are almost the same that, than the ones in the U.S., but also our conditions are difficult because many people, most of the people, like 80% of the population live with what they earn a day. So it's very difficult for them to, to do um quarantine so they are not doing it and I guess this will be quite rough and I hope it is not but I mean a miracle would have to happen which 
is is <laughs> very improbable, no? So maybe in in next month everything will be very difficult. That's what the infectologists say. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough space. Well, as in most cities, no, there's not enough space for deaf people. There's not enough space for hospitals. So well, it's really. A really horrible situation is coming. I don't know if if you also have that feeling, but it's a lot of a feeling of waiting and numbness, no, at some point. So yeah, and helplessness because I feel like we just found out literally I don't know maybe half an hour ago that someone in our family is uh, probably going to pass soon, and it's just like it just feels like there's just nothing you can do. It's just like waiting and observing all of this kind of tragedy and just feeling like totally helpless. Mm-hmm. Or like my father just got out of the hospital a couple of months ago and I actually had a trip planned to the U.S. Uh, the same, I was supposed to fly in the same day that uh, they put the travel ban into place so that Europeans couldn't fly into the U.S. Um, and I was going to go see my dad, but, you know, like he said, if something happened, I couldn't fly there. And even if I was there, I couldn't go into the hospital because they're keeping everybody out. Uh, family members can't really even see their family members if they're sick. So it's just like there's nothing we could do, it feels like. I'm really sorry for that. So what's your idea with the dreams? Like you said, so many people have been having dreams about this. Yes, uh, I've listened to my patients saying, oh, I've had this crazy dream uh, or uh, this bad dream. And I started talking about this with colleagues and they all tell me, oh, all of our patients are saying that and we are also having these really strange dreams. And so am I. So I usually keep a diary to myself on dreams, but now I decided that it would be a nice thing to do to make a collective dream diary, precisely because I think that one thing that is going to change permanently is the way we make community. And this can be a very good opportunity because it's not like we used to have the best means to do community. I think that communities usually tend to become fusional instead of habilitating like a place for individuality to be there. So I think that maybe using dreams and putting them in a platform may habilitate like a form of community through individuality, no? In these times of pain and in these times of uh, trying to do something with losses and changes no, I think that it's a very good sign that people are dreaming and that that should be used. You know? Because usually, uh, as I was telling you before, what happens here in Mexico is that losses are usually disavowed and they are usually thrown like to, bodies are thrown to mass graves. So that are, are the what we... The places we walk over might be uh, these uh, clandestine graves, and we don't even know, and we disavow it, and never talk about it, and never make a. Uh, I'm, I'm 
losing the word, we never mourn for those bodies. Mm -hmm. And this might be our opportunity because it's something is named as something one can lose, no? the loss of life or the... And I think it's an opportunity to lose in community and to be there even if we are distant, no? even if we cannot go to the hospital to see our sick people, even if we cannot go and to... Even if there will not be the ability to... Uh, do give sepulchre to people who are dying, we can give sepulchre in other forms and I think that the dreams might habilitate that kind of mourning that it's a form of mourning a lost object so uh, that's that's what I bet on with this collective dream diary on, and of course it would be without interpretations or anything it's not like a group therapy but more like a platform to to just know that your sorrow or pain or what you're going through in ways one does not understand can be shared and sustained in hold it in some form health mm -hmm. yeah I think that's lovely and like you said it's just like a place for it you know a place to collect these things and other people can kind of see see each others and feel maybe some recognition or resonance or yeah, sense of community. Yes. Is there any dreams that you can share that aren't from patients, but there are any other dreams you've heard of or your own dreams? Yes, uh, people have been sending dreams these last three days. I am not uploading anything that is from my patients uh, because I think that this platform should just be for those who want to share them there. I don't want any transference involved. Only like if people who know the, the what this diary is about and they want to share it, they share it. But well, yes, there are very interesting dreams. Uh, a friend of mine who decided to give her name, she's uh, an 80-year-old woman. She's passing through very difficult things and she is having very erotic dreams and she's sharing all of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are dreams... Uh, that are very interesting because they are from uh, women passing through this difficult time with their husbands and uh, coming into another level of intimacy. And then their kids start dreaming things about monsters and let them know. So also those kind of dreams are being shared. And I don't know, maybe I can read one of the ones that have been shared. That'd be For great. example, this one, which is, which is very short, is I dreamt of Carla. We both had a red Volkswagen. Ha, ha, ha. I thought, why did I change my, uh, my automobile for this one? Maybe this is really nice. And I know I knew that we were going to a reunion or something important about the movement of women. And <laughs> I find it funny because something that happened here in Mexico is that uh, the 8th of March, the 
the march for women was historical here, no? So all the streets were super packed and full of women shouting and being there, which didn't happen before, no? So feminism is really taking the streets. And the 9th of March, we all decided to not go out of home. And just after that, uh, no, COVID right. uh, here. So uh, it's interesting how this movement of women suddenly uh, became came into silence and started becoming something else. And many women now are having to, to call uh, for domestic violence in different ways or pe feminists are now changed their point of view from going into the streets to now uh, alerting in many uh, social media and those kind of platforms uh, to please uh, call if they are being violent and men, there are, there have been many many reports of of violence against women within within the domestic space, no? So, uh, well, I, I am sure that to me, bodies are political archives. And I also take very seriously that dreams might also be like our political folders, binders, documents. So what I really appreciate about these dreams is that to me, it's not only something individual, but something that we are sharing, no? Even if, for example, this person has just dreamed about two red Volkswagens and the movement of women, uh, those images, uh, images will be interpelling for all of us, no? So uh, that's why I would also, I, I also send this uh, to the Das Unbehagen because I would like people from many places to participate. I think that now is a great time to see that how we are all interconnected in ways that we don't know, no? And that it's important to give that a respect and uh, to make psychoanalysis a form of, of understanding also political things that happen, no? not only an individual space uh, that is only for a certain kind of classes where you can pay and you can go in the couch and talk with your analyst, but the psychoanalysis can serve for many other purposes that are political and that remind us of how we are interconnected with each other, no? Absolutely. Absolutely. I like psychoanalysis being in many different arenas and not just uh, in the clinical encounter. Where, where would people send in their dreams if they want to share? Uh, by now, because I did this really fast, what is to my email, and they can send it with an anonymous name, with their actual name, or with uh, their initials, and I just copy and paste without any intervention to the text. Uh, but maybe if this becomes bigger, I will make another email about this collective dream diary so that it is not addressed to my own email. Yeah, and then are they able to be read on your website, it's like a blog? Yes, it's a blog called, uh, it's diariocolectivodesueños.blogspot.com.
I'll send it to you. Cool. I, my immediate association to the uh, two red Volkswagens, it reminded me of the Handmaiden's Tale and all the women in their red dresses. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, which is like the opposite of <laughs> taking to the streets. But I've also watched it recently, so it's probably on my mind. I tried to watch The Handmaid's Tale when I was still in New York when it first came out, and I just like couldn't. I couldn't watch it while I was there, and the election had just happened, and it was like it was too real. It's too much. <laughs> um, but now that I live in Sweden, I can watch it from afar. Um, it's still really difficult to watch, though, I must say, at times. The, the interesting thing that's happening to me, that I usually am a very vivid dreamer and remember my dreams pretty much every night, at least, like, fragments of them. But for, like, the past three weeks, I haven't remembered anything. It's, like, completely blank when I wake up. Yes. And are you are you being able to sleep well? Yeah, I'm sleeping very heavily, but I usually never really have a problem sleeping. I usually sleep pretty deeply, but it's like, yeah, I'm falling asleep like immediately and just completely knocking out for eight hours and then waking up and like not remembering anything, which is really strange. It is. Things are changing, no, in in the way we dream, in the in in the form of sleeping and. I don't know. It's important. I think that that should be given a thought, no? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I remember a dream, I will write it down and send it to you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Great. Um, and I want to make sure to talk about your book, The Psychoanalysis, The Body and the Oedipal Plot. Well, this is a book that I I really have a lot of feelings for it because I think that it's what helped me bind my end of analysis. Uh, I've been in analysis since I was really young because, well, I, when I was very little, I used to be very esoteric and I think maybe that's why I'm interested now on this dream diary <laughs> because I used to be the witch of my school. <laughs> so I would interpret dreams and kind of more, more into the paranormal. <laughs> but that, of course, changed through time and I had um, to transform that into something more serious and decided to to study psychoanalysis at a very young age when I was about 13 because I wanted to dedicate my life to dreams you no know? but all of a sudden I lost that until I had many symptoms <laughs> and I really needed analysis so I started going at a very young age to analysis and had been there for years uh, years and years with three different analysts and to me uh, it was very uh, very difficult to know at what point I would end that analysis if if I would have to be there for all my life or not and when does it end and all of a sudden while I was in with Alfredo Valencia as an analyst I started to be very interested on subjects on sexual difference and this book helped me bind that but you know, those differences and to 
give a think to them again, but it also helped me uh, do a new writing that allowed me to end my analysis. And that's the biggest importance uh, sentimentally for me with this book, Psychoanalysis, the Body and the Oedipal Plot, a critical reimagining of the body in psychoanalysis. While I was trying to structure like a reimagining of the body, I think I was uh, giving an account at the same time of my own analysis without stating it as such and passing from being an analysant to assume myself as a, my as having my own form of doing analysis with my patients and as having my own form of listening but also as someone who has her own voice you no know, like giving a voice to myself so different than my first book. This book was about giving voice to myself much more than giving voice to the authors I was reading. This was much more like, I'm going to state these ideas and I'm going to use these authors to say what I want to say instead of uh, saying Freud said, Laplace said, it was much more about saying, I am saying, mm -hmm. you know? So that's why I think this book is very important to me. And theoretically, well, it is a, a departure in, psychoanaly in psychoanalysis that is different uh, to try to think of sexual difference, but also to try to think of alterity. I think that sexual difference in psychoanalysis has been binary. Uh, well, of course, because it was uh, created in modern times. And I think that Freud was affronting uh, an epistemic fall of the body and that he had to, he was trying all the time to give an account of that, of what he was listening to. And he was really uh, keen to Oedipus precisely because that was something that was being read in his time in all German schools. Uh, by young kids. I mean, he read for the first time Oedipus Rex. We can see in his in his um, letter uh, to his friend Flus, no? when he was very young, how he was reading already Oedipus Rex and translating it and how he was very proud that he had the highest grade for doing so in his class, no? So I and and he told his friend like, "Hey fools, keep my keep my letter because I'm gonna become famous." No, so somehow I think that <laughs> Freud knew that he was going to become famous at some level with Oedipus, because Oedipus was an important myth retaken in his time because it is a myth about patriarchy, and. A certain form of patriarchy was for sure falling through all Europe, no? With first with Henry VIII uh, killing him and taking his head off, but also uh, it was uh, the emergence of many movements that talk about the fall of patriarchy, like anarchy, like the start of thinking about communism, like the starts of feminism theoretical feminism, no, not only uh, active feminism. So uh, to me, it was very interesting to see how 
uh, women were viewed before this, how the body of the women were also suffering a fall because patriarchy was falling, that certain form of patriarchy. And it was astonishing to me to do research on historical uh, forms of understanding the body. And to me, it was amazing to see how, in those times, how they thought of, uh, well, about the creating life was always through the idea of men having a relationship with God that would allow men and God have give life via a vacuous space, which was women and who had no rights, no? And women were starting to have this political body that started to matter. And they were at the same time trying to fight for it. And I got really involved on how hysterical women uh, above what me uh, medicine of that time, Charcot and people in La, Sal in La Salpetriere started to see a part of that, there was a historical context that was making them sick, which was uh, they didn't have a uterus. They were only bodies to be seen by men. They were only be bodies to be property of men. But as soon as they started to somehow assimilate how they were also political bodies, they would have to assimilate that they had a role in reproduction and a role on life, you know, on giving life. It was not just being a space of men. You know, it was having their own body. So this having their own body brought many problems. And I think that hysteria in that time was talking of this problem. It was somehow speaking through their body how they could not make... Um, their uterus and their selves from their own, no? And to me, it's really sad how somehow medicine of that time tried to capture in the, in the within the side of the patriarchy that was falling, again, their bodies, no? So all these women in La Salpetriere would be bodies if they were seen, and they would be sick bodies. So uh, these kind of findings that I was making while doing my research really inspired me to try to think of the um, other epistemic crises that our bodies are going through in these times. I think this can be really connected to my idea of the collective dream diary because I think that what I'm trying to do there is to try to establish or try to think of new forms of making community which are falling and trying to elaborate a form of thinking of our bodies in community even exactly because some there's an epistemic crisis right now because of COVID of what we think of our bodies and of how we used to think of life and community, no? So in this book, I, what I was trying to do is think of this epistemic crisis of sexual difference and to think how uh, if Freud had the genius to, to listen to those women instead of just seeing them, which is a great feminist step, no? Not, not capturing them through their, his sight, but trying to listen to what they said 
which is which is somehow saying like okay these women never had a body but now they are speaking and this is what their body is and I think it's a really nice gesture of Freud that he always kept on wondering what is it to be a woman what do women want because of course no it seems as if no men had made those questions no even if if he was of course trapped on on a very binary form of his time he was starting to make those questions and starting to give voice to what those women were saying by writing about those cases and by saying for example in the Dora's case no like well this please do not take this as something literary please take this as a case but and but I would understand if you would take this as something literary so I think he was always going going through this uh, problem of trying to figure out what was going on with their bodies and how to talk about them precisely because his voice would never be their own voice so he would not uh, treat them literarily because that would be what they would have to do but at the same time him also being trapped by this vision of the people dedicated to medicine that would read him, no? So all these made me think of how uh, how also somehow I had been through all of my life, uh, well, through all of my adult life and through all of my adolescent times in analysis. And it also helped me elaborate how I had thought of that place as some something that supposedly knew uh, something about me that would be my work to write, you know, to write about what I was going through and to give myself a voice as a woman and as a body that speaks. So I think that that's what happened through this book. While I was doing this account of things going on uh, for women, I was also trying to give an account of myself, but then uh, also trying to, uh, another thing that happens in my book is that I try to think in Freudian metapsychology, uh, how the body is always a political archive in Paul Preciado's terms. And to me, <clears throat> that's really important because it is necessary to restate how psychoanalysis can serve us as a political theory so that it helps us uh, see how it's not about only individuality and how we dream individually or how we express ourselves individually, but how our bodies also get sick for political circumstances, such as what I was seeing in the history of that time. And many questions arrived to me, which I then addressed about Oedipus as a myth. I think that uh, Freud had many ways of uh, thinking of Oedipus. One was thinking of it as a structure that makes a body subject of political circumstances. 
Uh, another way was seeing Oedipus as a structurer of the mind within family. So it's a familial plot. And another form is that it's somehow a myth that is unconscious and that it elaborates certain forms of symbols. So I think that there were many, many terms on how Freud thought of Oedipus to restate and to put, it was important for me, instead of trying to think of patients and even of myself within that Oedipal plot, to now put Oedipus in the couch <laughs> of uh, feminist theories so that another voice would, uh, would enter the space of, of listening and the, and the place of knowledge and question Oedipus. No? So my work here is to question Oedipus as a plot and Oedipus as it has been thought of in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis as if it is a structure to make symbols and if it is the only way we have to make symbols. But also something that was very important to me is that I see that many psychoanalysts say that most patients now are bring uh, problems that are pre-symbolic, or I see also that many talk about pre-Edipal stages. So I started to become curious at what point those supposed pre-Edipal st uh, patients would only be patients talking about new forms of narratives that we have not thought of and that we as psychoanalysts have been very, uh, I don't know how to say that word, but very necios, very close-minded. Like narrow in that, our view, yeah. Yeah, to think that only through the Oedipal plot we can symbolize what if there are other forms of making symbols and what if there are other forms that do not cross a triangularity as we have thought of it within a familiar stage, no? So my book is about questioning that and about opening spaces for Oedipus to become something else because I think Oedipus has also been a sign that has been repeated in all psychoanalytic theory. And as we know, as psychoanalysts, uh, repetition speaks of the death drive, no? <laughs> so if Oedipus is not changing so much within theory, it means that something about the death drive is acting within our concepts of Oedipus. So what I tried to do was like a work of deconstruction of the Oedipal myth, and to play with it, with Oedipus in Colonos, and with the Ridas statement that that Oedipus in Colonos was thinking of his place of death, so that it might be that hospitality is um, is a problem that is much more important even than did I kill my father? Did I sleep with my mother? What's the consequences of that, how do I ascribe to culture because of those prohibitions? And 
So I started to be very, very interested on hospitality. And this um, book is much a, a lot about that, about thinking of psychoanalysis as a place for hospitality to occur. And I now that I'm saying this, I think that this connects with the Dream Diary because what I'm trying to do there is just not not in, no interpretation, no third voices, only a pay, uh, a, a person <laughs> writing about what that person has dreamt of, giving account of itself publicly with a name or another name, but having the, this platform for hospitality to occur, no? So, uh, well, I think that's more or less a, a general account of this book. It's wonderful. And I love, uh, you mentioned Paul Preciado. I love uh, that he says that instead of getting rid of Oedipus, you save Oedipus from the Freudian norm and give him the chance to accept his own vulnerability and alterity. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was very flattered by that commentary by Preciado. And I was especially happy about that because... Uh, did did you see what happened in in the Congress in in France where Preciado gave his statement no. next to the analysts? Oh, that was awesome! I'll I'll send you the the document. Uh, he he got up there. He he was invited for this Congress about the feminine, and he did this really great statement speaking of Kafka's. Um, Monkeys. I don't know how what's the, the exact translation, but how he feels as if he was a monkey talking to these people who still speak in patriarchal terms, and he questioned them. No, okay, let's see. You are psychoanalysts, but who of you can declare yourself a gay psychoanalyst? And nobody raised their hands. No, and then who of you have thought that? This Congress name is very strange, like femininity. How come? <laughs> are we still talking about femininity? Uh, are, are, is there another chance of something else? Who's talking about femininity? Is it a man? No. So there were these kind of questions that were very disturbing for some of them. And Troy was in flames. <laughs> but at the same time... Uh, there were so many people that were very excited because this is something that has to be given a thought within psychoanalysis, no? how binaries have come to ridiculous terms. For example, the feminine and the masculine positions in Lacanian psychoanalysis, I, found them, I find them to be very ridiculous because even if they are positions and they do not speak about women or men in uh, terms of their organs, no, which mm. is also a construction, maybe, no. It's they are still calling feminine and masculine positions. Why, why, why use why the use of those terms, no, or why the use of phallic symbol? I understand it's much more complex and much uh, more, much less uh, like it's a penis or something like that. No, it's something more elaborated. But anyhow, it is still being called like that. No, and still many analysts think of the end of analysis as the feminization or as 
which is to me is like that's very weird and we should think about this <laughs> seriously no no absolutely i i agree because uh i think todd mcgowan and i talked about this on one episode of the the podcast it's like uh I understand the argument that the phallus isn't really the phallus and like why, you know, the argument for not changing the term, but like, why not just use a different term? You know, <laughs> like you're still using the old language and like why, why, even if it would be just an exchange of the same thing just for a different word, like that could help a lot of people enter psychoanalysis that are really turned off by that, you know? <laughs> Yes, and saying phallic symbol, I also think that even if it's very abstract and beyond what the penis is and whatever, it is still it is still giving an account of how things get to be symbolized only through patriarchal terms, no? Exactly. Which of course is a reality that has existed. But what if something else occurs? Might happen, no? Yeah, I'm gonna change it. <laughs> Let's change it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's change it. Let's do that. I saw you had other books, too. This was the only one that I uh, had read. Ah, yes. Uh, Before this one, I wrote about what does a woman want. But I am, it's it's a book when I read it that I can see how it's very different from this one because in this one I'm using my own voice and in that one it's like I was uh, in a process of starting to study psychoanalysis more seriously and trying to be liked, no, and trying to be under the terms of what theory had invented. So I was more or less trying to do out of my practice something that I was learning from and not something that was my own voice. So I can see that because I was very much in what does a woman want? What did Freud say about women? What did all these men in psychoanalysis say about women? I'm going to do a compilation. And after that, I'm going to do some questions. No, And that's what I did. <laughs> but those questions was like the, were like the start to try to give my, myself my own voice. So I I really love that book for that. Uh, and it's also like an interesting compilation of what, how women have been thought of within psychoanalytic terms. Uh, right now, I'm more interested not on reading uh, sci- men psychoanalysts, but on reading mystics. So I'm starting to read este, Teresa de Jesus, Uh, and her experiences of mysticism, which are really interesting to me, and how, or Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, because to me it's very interesting to see how these women got their own voice while also being uh, crazy in their own terms and doing something incredible about it. And interested on that, I was very excited a month ago because, well, of course, life has changed so much from a month ago until now. But a month ago, I was uh, excited because I was organizing a congress here in Mexico City called Freud Extraterritorial or Extraterritorial Freud. And it was about thinking of Freud as that man that was somehow out of medicine, out of literature, out of so many disciplines, but also so in them and how he had so many effects in all those disciplines. 
So the Congress was going to be about that. Of course, uh, we canceled it because now we think that it's not important right now, <laughs> but because of our circumstances. But I hope that it can be important again in some other time. And, and if it is, and I do it again and organize it again, this was going to be on 21st, 22nd, and 23rd of April. But if I organize it again, of course, Vanessa, you're invited to come here to Mexico <laughs> to talk about something related to that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking I have to know about that and go. <laughs> so, <perfect>. Yes. <laughs> yes, that would be amazing. That sounds amazing. And it's so true. He's like in all disciplines and none. Yeah. And having such an effect in, in all those disciplines, no? And uh, I think that uh, that has been also uh, something I want to retake and to state within psychoanalysis how it is so important to give voice to ourselves. I think that uh, Freud was very aware of that, even if he had his difficulties and wanted to be liked by uh, people studying medicine, you know, and me these medical doctors with a lot of prestige, he wanted to be liked by them. But at the same time, he could make he could have a little bit of freedom on speaking his own, in his own terms and being creative and inventing new forms. And those new forms are what is valuable to me within psychoanalysis. Those psychoanalysts' point of view, I appreciate the most, are those which are original and that come from a personal process and, of course, a political process within one's own body, no? but it's like the own way of tramiting that and making something original out of it. And I think that communities must nurture of that individuality instead of uh, making psychoanalysis a boring discipline that is always like repeating concepts or repeating what the other said and trying to make something out of what Lacan or Freud or Winnicott said. I, I think that that has to stop because uh, most people have very valuable things to say by themselves, no? So one of the proposals of this Congress is to invite people who want to say something by themselves, uh, somehow as Freud did, but to talk about this strangeness uh, and, and foreignness that that Freud lived to, to somehow honor how psychoanalysis is always at the margins and how Psychoanalysis is about giving voice to that which is at the margins and which is desire, which is uh, problematic, which is ambivalent, to give voice exactly to that, no? Absolutely, and I completely agree that um, I, I really hope that psychoanalysis as a field is moving towards uh, what you're talking about, like supporting individual voices rather than kind of this really academic regurgitation of like theory as dogma, because I think that's gotten really stale and is not uh, it's not that useful. It's like it's like it's yeah, that's what we did in school, and then after you've kind of learned what other people have to say, shouldn't we be able to say what we have to say? <laughs> exactly. Yes. 
we they all said they all said what they had to say. Ford was thinking his ideas and listening to other people. Lacan found his own voice, so you know we should find our own voices and not just uh, repeat them. Yes, exactly. I that's 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 very condensedly put what I'm uh, I've been thinking of. I think. Yeah, I've been feeling the same way, um, and I've been talking to more and more people that are feeling the same way, so it's good to see that that's uh, finding a community. There's a community in that as well. Um, and I was also going to say, my husband and I have done these conferences that are like psychoanalysis and the esoteric, and we've had like psychoanalysts on the same panel with like santeros and kimbandatatas and uh, voodoo priests and things like that. So next time we have one of those, you'll have to come. Right. Awesome. Thank you. And yes, I think that also this crosses the problem of institutions, no? That some, somehow maybe a lot of the problems within that happen within institutions and that reiterate uh, more and more problems is the problem of power, no? And how some people end up like uh, representing their voice while uh, that voice is exactly what should be moved, no? Uh, it's more like making community with many analysts so that we can all speak and inter, uh, like have an exchange of our ideas and get to know how the other thinks and open up to to those to all voices instead of uh, reiterating the power of one person that will analyze certain persons and that will say about it's it's not about that no it's at the end it's about thinking and about sharing thoughts and making a community out of individualities not about fusing with what one person says or the way one person works so i think i think that's very important and that now during the pandemics we have also this opportunity because we are somehow, I like how they say in this lockdown, as if we are, <laughs> as if we are locked inside our homes or, but it's an opportunity somehow to liberate ourselves and to be able to connect with that which we think of and to try to communicate in the new ways that we are affronting because of these pandemics. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Fernanda Magallanes, a psychoanalyst practicing in Mexico City. For more, please visit her website, fairmagallanes.com. That's F-E-R-M-A-G-A-L-L-A-N-E-S.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net
You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, Dark Moon from the album Cut to Fit the Mouth, available from Highbrow Lowlife and Tripart Editions. Recorded on the new moon, June 3rd, 2016. My lunar module could never rest. Take me to the moon. The dark side of the moon, yeah, temporarily in is Lilith. And I bring to you, despised, and I seek your moment of freedom. Were spare developed an idiocut. Creative space, habit right there. As soon as the knowledge, by leaving the child, fly to UK to sign books, return home from UK. Brian Geisen and William S. His works, however, the definition, connective tissue, as the skin limbs, and divination proved was not that very be with you no or not no of laboring feel of laboring feet no or not no be with you very that was not proved and divination as the skin limbs Connective tissue, definition, his works, however, the Brian Geisen and William S. Return home from UK, fly to UK to sign books, knowledge by leaving the child, habit right there, as soon as this spare created an idiosyncratic space were moment of freedom despised and I seek your is Lilith and I bring to you temporarily in the dark side of the moon yeah take me to the moon 
my lunar module could never rest. 